This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle. My guest today is the multi-talented Andy Friedman of Brooklyn, the visual artist, musician, writer, and sports fan. His work in its various forms has been published by the New York Times, Rolling Stone, GQ, Vanity Fair, Ebony, the New York Times Magazine, and of course, the New Yorker. Great to have you on Sports Jam, Andy. It's great to be here, Doug. Thank you. You know, before we talk about your latest project, which is certainly sports related with Tops, I want to touch on that wonderful piece that you did for the New Yorker in October of last year. A storybook season, an interview with Mike Schmidt, a terrific Mm. article with incredible illustrations. So how was it interviewing your favorite baseball player, the Phillies Hall of Fame third baseman and World Series champion, Mike Schmidt? I mean, am I, I don't know if I'm dreaming right now <laughs> being asked that question because the whole thing was so surreal. Uh, in the childhood bedroom where I used to organize his baseball cards, uh, we were uh, it was during coronavirus lockdown. Uh, family has a place out in the Poconos uh, that was empty. We were there with the family. So the, the whole experience was really surreal, but, but really inspiring. And what a nice guy. And we just got lost in a real human conversation. So, which is what got me into Mike Schmidt to begin with. I was the kid that struck out every at bat. I had no confidence. I was 12 years old when I started Little League, shaking at the knees, lift your elbows, do this, do that. You know, just, it was, my helmet was too big. I just had no confidence at all. Um, We used to, we'd get the Phillies games in the Poconos in the summertime. And what drew me to Schmidt, I wasn't much of a baseball fan uh, heading into that summer, was he's like, he kind of reminded me of my dad. He he just seemed so, so, so uh, poised and, and, and he made it look so easy. Here's the stretch by Robinson. The 3-0 pitch. Swing and long drive. There it is. Number 500. The career 500th home run for Jack Schmidt and the Phillies have regained the lead at Pittsburgh, 8-6, and the Phillies dugout comes swarming out to home plate. Boy, what a time, and what a time to pick for number 500. The whole dugout's out there. You don't see Smith get very emotional going around the bases on a home run. He took, jumped on second with both feet. He banged his fist high around third base. The whole bullpen now is coming out. That is a storybook 500 home run. And I kind of thought, I want to try that. Like, I just kind of gave up trying so hard. And once I did that, it unlocked... Uh, my ability to just sort of be and let, you know, the, the, the spiritual side of athleticism come, come forward. So the conversation, you know, it, it was no surprise that he was just such an accessible, human, wonderful soul to connect with about these bigger issues. I mean, you've done so many interviews with people. Were you nervous? apprehensive maybe you know i mean honestly he he's he's a role model throughout my life in not being nervous locating nervousness as a symptom of something that you could decide to not 
indulge. So yeah, of course, you're kind of nervous for everything, but you take a breath, you step up to the plate, you block out the crowd, and you fall into the zone of what you're familiar with. And in this case, this is a conversation with another human being. You, you do everything you can to, to, to steady your, your soul and mind so that, so that you could uh, swing easy. Like, like he said, uh, turned his whole career around after the relatively dismal rookie campaign. Uh, I, and that was my favorite moment. I couldn't believe I got to ask my hero, you see the back of a baseball card reads like a novel. And that was always really inspiring to see that 196. I, I think it was, and maybe I'm mistaken exactly on the batting average of his first year. But And then to see him lead the league in home runs th- for a kid who struck out every time at bat, I, 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 you know, I could, I could find hope in that story. Did yeah. you end up becoming a pretty good hitter? Well, you know, I did, but, but, I did, uh, you know, and I had I had a, a year of, of Little League when I returned and, you know, when I was about 15 and suddenly I was the cleanup hitter and like hitting balls over the fence. Is that right? Um, but that season got cut short because some family situation where where I was only allowed to play for a month. So it was kind of such a tease. I got pulled out and then fell into that summer, fell into softball. Um, I used to watch, okay, so we, so I spent my summers in the, in the Poconos. Uh, my family's uh, native New Yorkers, Brooklynites since the 1890s. The whole tradition is getting away to the Catskills. Uh, I, I grew up in the Borscht Belt, Catskills, bungalows. By the time I was six, my folks transitioned to the Poconos because we became skiers. There was a softball league, a men's softball league. And when we were kids, we would watch those games early Sunday morning, you know, before going up to the, the pool. And to me, these guys were like major leaguers. So that season, when I was kind of pulled from the momentum and the joy of actually not striking out uh, and, and playing, I thought, you know, maybe I could play with these guys. I was 15 and the rule was 17 and up. But a, a co-counselor, we were, we were working in a day camp. He played. He was 17. He vouched for me. They let me play. And I felt like I had made it to the major leagues, right? And, you know, I just kind of transitioned to softball. I, I didn't play baseball in high school. I, I tried, actually, when I returned. But, it, it, I, you know, I rode the bench. Um, I, didn't, I didn't excel in baseball. But uh, softball became really a passion that I continued till my late 20s, even here in Brooklyn, playing in leagues with three umpires. And I still take it really seriously when I get a chance to get out and play. I've been playing more this season than ever. It has always been an exercise above all in maintaining that philosophy of swinging easy. And I always applied it to my artistic practices. So softball was a game that I enjoyed playing but it was really a spiritual exercise. If you can hit, if you can connect, it's, it just, it requires you to just be completely calm at peace and let your technical know-how rise to the surface and let your nerves fall away. When you're studying Renaissance painting, as I had done, academically trained, you want to be able to do the same thing. Uh, you know, um, there's no such thing. 
is messing up. You want to, you want to, it's all about getting into the zone. So sports informed my art and then my art informed the sports and they work, they work together as you well know. And as you can tell, if you know any of Andy Friedman's music, he is a great storyteller and we're going to hear lots of stories from here, from him on sports jam today. So, you know, Mike Schmidt, Reminds me of one of the guys I witnessed growing up, Willie Stargell, because both of them had tremendous power, but both did strike out quite a bit. And both had fans at times boo them in their own home stadium. And there they were, both Hall of Famers, who really were tremendous players. But the thing about Mike Schmidt is not only was he a great home run hitter, he was also a smooth fielding third baseman. He was terrific. Him and Brooks Robinson dominated third base in the 70s in uh, baseball. So now in conjunction with Tops, you take your passions and put them all together. You've put together Spotlight 70, a collection of 70 watercolor images, reimagining some of the best players from the 70s and 80s. And what's exciting for me, Andy, is you've included my favorite player in that group. Pirates catcher and two-time World Series champion Manny Sanguin. And was it really because of the Schmidt article? Did that prompt Spotlight 70? Uh, you know, a few years before the Schmidt, one of my first pieces of illustrated reportage for the New Yorker's website uh, was a piece called The Loneliness of the Common Player. And in it, it's illustrated, uh, in it, I, I, I talk about why I started drawing uh, some of baseball's uh, lesser known heroes. Um, I had injured myself. I, I explained that I was academically trained. I like to say uh, self-described uh, recovered perfectionist. But as a, as a, you know, I wanted to be the next Vermeer. I, I would spend two and a half years on a painting, you know, and I always looked at my ability to kind of draw a straight and steady line and include all the details as a, as a gift, not only a gift, a superpower. One of these days, you're going to look into the mirror, see if you've become who you wanted to be. You're gonna look into the mirror Recognize the fact that You may have become who you wanted to be I understand what Van Gogh understood I can see why he took off his ears well, I was on the road for 10 years supporting my music. And before that, I had a art slideshow poetry uh, traveling performance that I did for three years before I even became a musician. I, I didn't become a musician until I recorded my first record at the age of 30, six months after I picked up a guitar for the first time. I was doing illustration assignments, time sensitive, pressure deadlines, you know, drawing presidents for magazines and newspapers that I knew they'd see again, you got to get, you know, get the audience out of your mind. But I was doing that on two hours sleep sometimes out of hotel rooms before a seven hour drive. And then the next thing repeat for two weeks times 10 years. Again, I, I didn't really know how to play guitar too well. 
uh, my form wasn't uh, probably uh, a model. Um, I would bleed. My fingers would bleed every night. I just kind of broke. And uh, I got carpal tunnel in both of my hands. And, and that, that actually came about when I, I, had, I had lost some weight in my you know, late 30s. Got into playing softball uh, again in the middle of a diving catch. I think it was in the air when I remembered I wasn't 25. I hit the ground really hard, ended up bruising a nerve root. And I, like, I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't move my hands. I went to a neurologist and he diagnosed me with carpal tunnel. And I thought, how do you get carpal tunnel from diving for a softball? Uh, and he said, uh, you know, when the body goes through a trauma, it tends to reveal its other weaknesses and this is just years and years waiting to happen and you just spilled over well, in the meantime i couldn't i couldn't barely lift a dish i would drop dishes for you know cleaning the table on, on the way to the kitchen so you know i lost my superpowers i lost my confidence i lost everything uh, magazines kind of stopped calling us frequently i couldn't i couldn't draw i had to reinvent i had to I had to understand what to do next in case my hand never recovered. Because unlike if you're an athlete and you injure yourself, unfortunately, it does affect your ability to play. If you're an artist, you can always reinvent. You know, many of the greatest artists have always shown us that. Uh, my, one of my favorites being Bob Dylan. So privately, I started doing the scariest artistic thing I could imagine, which is drawing without a pencil, without a plan, without precision, just picking up a pen and ink uh, and just going, improvising. Now that may seem easy, but when you're an OCD perfectionist who, you know, views, has a, a perspective of himself and everything else is, it's do or die, it's perfect or it's terrible. That's a really difficult thing because what you're really doing is you're showing your true self, all right? That was scary enough because I thought in case my hand never recovered, I'm going to have to find essentially the strength in this newfound weakness. Well, what was I going to draw? I went back to childhood. I've been drawing baseball cards my whole life. I mean, why? I mean, they're beautiful. Even if you don't like baseball or don't know who the players are, that you can't deny the uh, the contribution of of tops and in the in the field of graphic design and portrait photography and the marriage of the two. I mean, these these things belong in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and they are. But they, for me, bring up safe, warm, happy childhood memories they're all in the same you know childhood lunchbox that i carried when i was a kid and they, i brought them to college they just travel with me because when i need to be centered and calm i just kind of start flipping through them they're like family photos i thought i'm just going to start drawing these but i skipped the more recognizable players because as a likeness artist as an artist who's always you know have art directors looking over your shoulder to make sure the like i, I couldn't get into not that I was going to show anybody, but I didn't want to hear anyone say, well, that doesn't look like Dave Winfield, because that wasn't the point. So drawing, the, you know, the, the, the players, um, maybe whose faces are less recognizable, took certain pressures off of me to just fall into it. This is what the piece that I did in The New Yorker was about. And also, I, 
the loneliness of the complex. It was 2015. And I, I, I looked at the, the cards themselves as landscapes or, you know, like Cezanne would look at uh, Bibimus Quarry or, or, you know, Van Gogh, his postman. I looked at them as subjects to pain. That's what the piece was about. Spotlight 70, you know, is an extension of that idea to a certain extent, but celebrates, uh, you know, you know a, a more diverse palette of, uh, you know, baseball heroes. I think that, you know, that's really, that's really where, it, where it stems from. And the Schmidt interview, you know, didn't hurt. What card means the most to you and why? Oh, wow. What a question. Uh, the checklist? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer. <laughs> because like you said, it does, it, you have so many memories. Um, you know, a lot of people, including myself, that's how I remember players by thinking of what their card looked like. You know, when people will call up somebody from the 70s and 80s when I was collecting cards, you know, and then I'll say, oh, yeah, Dave Concepcion. You know, I, re I remember what his card looked like. I remember what Bernie Carbo's card looked like when he was playing for the Red Sox or something like that. Like you said, players that aren't as maybe recognizable, even though both are good players that I just mentioned there. Um, not everybody, unless you're in Cincinnati or in Boston, might remember those those players from the 70s. So it's quite a fun collection and congratulations. They're beautiful cards, uh, beautiful drawings and illustrations, but this is nothing new for you. You have had this knack to be able to draw. And I know that you said you were, you know, you were classically trained, you know, in, in various types of, of drawing, but what was the first or one of the first times you drew something and somebody said either that was good or you said it to yourself, Hey, not bad. Mm. Good question. I, I, I remember being able to draw a crowd, uh, using the word draw as a, not, not, not a draw, but a, attract a crowd of fellow uh, kindergartners and the teacher. Everybody gathering around me while I drew Mickey Mouse. I was probably, you know, what, six, something like that. But even before that, nursery school, I, I remember students gathering around from an early age i i just sort of i guess in, in other areas of life I, I really was kind of skittish i didn't have a lot of confidence and i really from an early age i was really into superheroes i really viewed it as kind of a superpower uh you know for better or worse um and and that that idea was being reinforced from a very early age by adults, you know, um, parent, fr uh, friends, and uh, the, the, the parents of my friends. Uh, so I just kind of believed it, but I actually don't remember not having that association. Did you, um, did you, when you were, I, I get a sense because of your ability to write and illustrate that you made your own comics when you were young. Oh, yeah. Did you do? Yeah. What, were, oh what, were, what was so, a story so that you can tell us that maybe your own superhero or something that? Oh, I mean, there, there, are so, there are so many, but they all have the same theme, including my fascination with Mike Schmidt. He fits the, fits the role. My favorite movie is The Natural, you know, the underdog. 
the underdog, the, the uh, presumed weakling, the emerging stronger than everybody else. So all of my comics were about somebody failing, being made fun of, and then showing them, you know, showing, showing them how it's done. And then everybody, you know, either cowering in fear or, you know, applauding the, this, this new hero. I mean, that's, that's like every, I had one, I mean, it's, it was called, uh, uh, I think, Mega Dork, <laughs> like a kid who gets made fun of in the lunchroom and then, you know, like gets smashed in the face with a banana peel and that's it, last straw. And then he becomes this, you know, huge kind of Hulk and the bullies run away, always bullies running away, you know? And my, one of my earliest, this is a, this is something I deal with even now, judgment, like the, the demons of judgment really creep in when I'm drawing and that, that just like when you're at bat, the job is to, you know, keep, keep anyone watching, you know, out of the, out of the picture. But I, I remember drawing Pinocchio. I was probably about six. I think my parents got me a kind of like how to draw Disney characters animation kit. And you would draw with a, you know, a grease pencil on a, a clear sheet of plastic and, you know, go through the motions of what it's like to draw animated cells. And, you know, it, it starts off so easy. There he is on the box. I'm just going to draw it. Then the voices start coming in like, oh, you can't draw. You're nothing. If you mess up, if you mess up that ear, like you're nothing. You're just a failure, you know, and it would all be all about proving the bullies in my mind wrong. And when I drew it perfectly, you know, in my mind, they would all just run away and say, like, let's get out of here. He's way more powerful than we thought. And that goes all the way up until I injured my hand. It was perfection for me was all about, you know, proving the doubters wrong. Who are the doubters? Me, you know, my, my psyche. I mean, I hope that's a universally relatable theme, you know, the real challenge was, you know, yeah, well, what are you going to do once you have no choice and you, and, you, and you can't, you can't be perfect. Well, I mean, it was the greatest gift that I, people say, I'm so sorry that happened. It was the carpal tunnel was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it taught me that I was, I was hiding my true self behind that technique. And, uh, you know, the bravery required in, in, in confronting your vulnerabilities and exhibiting them, uh, I, I found as an artist and as a person just way more rewarding. I can breathe easier now in life. I, I think I can even hit a softball further. You know, I'm 46 years old. I'm really happy that, that that's a fact. Um, and life just became easier as a non-perfectionist. And I owe it all to limitation. And that I also hope is a relatable theme, especially after what we all just went through in the entire world. You know, collective vulnerability was exposed. I hope that's something that unites all of us. But the, these are themes that empower um, because we all, I presume, uh, have vulnerabilities. And I, for me, I'll speak for myself, they're frightening. And uh, people, you know, they're for all, again, I'll speak for myself, they're, they're shameful. You know, you don't want to share them, but it's kind of the response. I looked at it as the, uh, my artistic responsibility to share it. And why I make the distinction between athletes and artists in that way is that except for the knuckleball, there's not too much room to kind of reinvent. 
if you are an injured athlete. And so I, I felt like it was just, I know people who, who suffered hand injuries as artists and then, you know, and that's how I got into real estate, you know, which is cool. I respect it, but right. you don't have to quit. You should know, make something from it. That's, that's really amazing. And two, because of your characters and your, your cartoons, you combine so much of yourself uh, in that, and you, you bring out a lot of humor too. But I tell you what, I think Megadork would work right now. I think that that I think a lot of people. You mentioned the word relate, you know. And if you can come up with something that everybody can relate to, and that's why through the years, you know, your your sketches and your your cartoons have made an impact because people can relate. They either laugh or they see themselves or somebody they know or somebody they're thinking about. But Megador, think about, we've gone through all this bullying stuff through the years. We've talked about how, um, you know, we had Revenge of the Nerds movie back in the days, right? Megador could still be relevant today because... The movie, right, yeah. Yeah, right? Because it, it, would be, it would be something that people can go, yeah. If you weren't the person who was picked on, you know somebody who was picked on. Or when we see the Olympics coming up, we always hear stories about some athlete who was either had some sort of tragedy in their life or some sort of change like you had to go through that gave them the edge and propelled them to greatness. And we see it all the time. And I'm sure we're going to hear more stories coming up for the Tokyo Games coming up a little bit later this month. Are you interested at all in the Olympics? I'm, I'm interested in it. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, but I, I can't... Uh proclaim to be an expert on all of the athletes and their names and what they're doing. But when it's happening, I am usually watching, but I've been in kind of a bubble the last, last few months. Uh, you know, um, of course I'm interested in any athletic performance again, because of the lessons it teach, you know, the lessons it teach, it teaches uh, about how to live. I mean, one of my favorite athletic spectacles to watch is a is a manager or a player talking about um what they're going to do next after a miserable loss those some of the most inspiring moments to me is the locker room interviews post post miserable performance it's all it's so positive you have to be positive in sports you have to you have or at least know or at least know how to motivate right or at least know how to self -gen yeah, generate that positivity. Exactly. Even if you have to fake it till you make it, it's like, it's something that you just kind of can't do in a bad negative mood. I miss being broken. I miss being low. The ever quiet sound of pain in my bones. Counting fingertips of winter trees. Busting memories like stone I miss being broken I miss being lonely. As I mentioned earlier here on Sports Jam, we're speaking with Andy Friedman. Your music is a, you know, is a storytelling clinic. And um, Bob Dylan, you know, is the master storyteller. And you talk about how, you know, he's, he's had an impact on you. Have you performed any of his songs and, and, and just for yourself or for others that, and is there one in particular that you love? You know, actually I was invited in 2009, maybe it was when, uh, uh, what's the name of that record? 
here, Beyond Here Lies Nothing came out. Uh, there was a there was a tribute to Bob Dylan up in Woodstock, New York, and uh, I was invited by my a good friend and a you know, someone who I admired long before I had the pleasure of knowing. Happy Traum was was on the bill, who, who, who used to play, uh, who's played some acoustic guitar on uh, some Dylan tracks, notably on uh, "I Shall Be Released" and "Down in the Flood" on Greatest Hits Volume Two. There's a lot of amazing musicians on this bill. I was pleased and flattered to be invited to contribute a song and i chose lenny bruce from shot of love if you get up there start playing and just feedback starts coming out and it's like the loudest longest feedback that i personally ever heard let alone emitted and there was nothing i could do i don't know what was making it happen and all i remember from that day is everybody's you know, expression looking back at me. Um, once that was resolved, I mean, it, it might have been like 50 seconds, which oh, is wow. a long time. Yeah. You know, uh, then we, you know, I got, got back on my feet and played the song, but that, <laughs> that would be my, my memory of performing a Dylan song live. I mentioned that over the last two months, I've recorded a, a, lot, of, a lot of songs, just me and a guitar um, alone in, in the woods where we locked down. And yeah, I, 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 I have a one version of Dirt Road Blues from Time Out of Mind that I really enjoy. We have a few minutes left here on Sports Jam. I wanted to ask you about um, one of my good friends used to be the news director at uh, Western Kentucky uh, Radio, Public Radio. And now he's a songwriter in Nashville. And he would send me his songs in the early stages. And I would say, I want to know what happened here at the end. What? Why did did she kill him? Did he drown? And he said, "Doug, you just don't understand storytelling. You come up with the the endings for yourself. You imagine what's going on. What do you feel is the key to storytelling in music?" Oh, honesty, the ability to relay mystical truths that maybe you don't even know you possess, and letting go of the outcome or how it might be appreciated. Like you said, I mean, no, I mean, yeah, everybody's free to come up with their own meaning when they experience a piece of art. So the key, yeah, the key is for the artist to confront themselves head on and uh, just emit honesty and, and, in every brush stroke, so to speak, in every utterance, stripped down to the core of you know, who you actually are and what you're actually trying to say, even if it's all metaphor. It's about truth. Your favorite song that you have that people should listen to? I mean... I know that's a tough I question like, to ask. But... Yeah. Oh, no, it's only tough because there are so many. Uh, <laughs> I, I enjoy playing the song Idaho because I mean it every time I sing it. <laughs> I want to get back to Idaho. I want to get back to Colorado. I want to get back to New Mexico. I want to get back. I want to go. want to go with the devil.
desert cools my mind to the land of the Sinclair gas station sign. I want to go where the road never winds. I want to get back there if I ever get the time. I want to spend three nights in a cabin in Lake Marie Ryan. Left a torn blue sweatshirt in a diner somewhere near Spokane. Let's find our way back to Galena's, huh? if we can. I drove from Denver straight through Kansas, and when I got there, my left arm was dead. I like the rest of them, but I mean, that, that, one's, that one's special to me. I wrote it in as, about as much time as it took, as it takes to sing. And that's the same for a song called Freddy's Back Room on an album called Weary Things. Both of those songs come from a record on Weary Things. But if you listen to Freddy's, it's sort of a talking narrative song. And it, it was written in about as long as it takes to write. They just Sometimes it just flows. Like, like the watercolor and ink in Spotlight 70. That's what it's all about. Same thing. You can look at them as baseball cards. That's all great. It has a lot to do with baseball and baseball cards. But it also has to do with this outpouring of uh, emotional and artistic truth. I took a walk down to Freddy's bar while my wife and kid were asleep. I used to go there almost every night when I was young and free. Not that I'm unfairly constrained held against my will. This is back when it didn't matter what time I stayed out until. Now it matters because my son gets me up at 5 a.m. each day. And you don't argue with someone who's got their finger in your eye. Freddy's has a back room to play music in. Or to listen. Buzzers on the walls beneath icing thick paint that dates back to prohibition. So there's a lot, you know, there's a lot there for me personally that I'm proud of and ecstatic about having the opportunity to, uh, you know, present. We have less than a minute to go, but the Spotlight 70 series is available through the end of the month. How can people get their hands on your incredible work? Tops.com. They're available in packs of 10, and every day Tops is going to release a new uh, numbered edition artist proof card with some alternate versions. It's a really fun set. There's error cards, parallels, all kinds of surprises, uh, but it's all at Tops.com. If you put yourself into a Tops character, are you in a Phillies uniform? Is it a Mike Schmidt's uniform, or is it something similar? 86 tops. I, re- I, I drew that in 86. Andy Friedman, rookie card on the Pirates. And actually, that, and then, and then actually the, this would be the 87 tops with the all-star, with the rookie trophy uh, and I, where I was a Philly. So, uh, you know, I guess my, I guess the Phillies. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be it. Don't forget about the Pirates. So that's my team. So don't forget about them. I like that first card that you showed. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's in good condition, too. It certainly is. 
hey, it's, it must be so fun to be Andy Friedman, you know, just to be able to draw and write and sing and do everything. You are so talented, and it's been such a pleasure having you on Sports Jam. Doug, it's been a great thrill and a pleasure as well. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios podcast. You can hear all the shows by going to wbgo.org slash sports jam. Find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts and on iTunes. Special thanks this week going out to Jerry Milani for hooking us up with Andy Friedman. Until our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game.